watching the rise and fall of human systems. Light radiates in a pattern of expanding waves. Is there life elsewhere? How does it affect us? These are big questions. Yet the meaning of all this to us is far from ordinary. You're listening to Transistor, a science series from PRX. What does real amnesia look like? We've seen all kinds of depictions in the movies where the hero hits his head on the bathroom floor and suddenly he can't remember anything. He can't remember where he's from, he can't remember who he is. That's really not amnesia. Today, we're gonna be talking to somebody who studied the most famous amnesic patient in the world, patient HM. We're gonna learn about what real amnesia looks like. HM could remember who he was. He knew his parents. He remembered so much about his past, but what he couldn't do is form any new long-term memories. Dr. Wendy Suzuki, and this is Totally Cerebral, part of Transistor from PRX, supported by the Sloan Foundation. Before I spoke with Professor Suzanne Corkin of MIT about the famous amnesic patient HM, I thought I knew everything about this patient. I knew that he had very severe epilepsy, and in 1953, he underwent removal of two key brain structures in the temporal lobe, the hippocampus and the amygdala, on both sides. His surgeon was William Beecher Scoville. Now, the operation succeeded in decreasing the severity of these epileptic seizures, but it left him with a debilitating memory deficit for the rest of his life. He was only 27 when this operation took place. All of this was described in a groundbreaking paper by Brenda Milner and his surgeon, Dr. Scoville. I knew all the studies that described his memory impairment and what he couldn't remember. I also knew all the studies that described what he was able to learn and remember. But in sitting down with Suzanne, I realized I didn't know anything about H.M. as a person. I didn't know anything about his personality, his sense of humor. I didn't know what it was like to live on a day-to-day basis with such a profound memory impairment. I also didn't realize how difficult it must have been for Suzanne to have to plan for patient HM's inevitable death. What was it like for her to be responsible for the most famous brain in all of neuroscience? What really happened for me during this interview is patient HM went from a two-dimensional set of data to a three-dimensional person, Henry Mollison. Suzanne has written a wonderful book called Permanent Present Tense, The Unforgettable Life of the Amnesic Patient H.M. She worked with him for 47 years. And given that long history, the first question I asked Suzanne was, when you asked him whether he knew you, what did he say? He said yes. And he thought he knew me from high school. Now, how did this come about? Well, I met him in 1962 when I was at McGill, 
From 1966 on, we studied him at MIT. He had 40 admissions to the MIT Clinical Research Center, and these were typically one, two, or even three-week admissions. So he heard my name a lot from his caregivers and, of course, when he was at MIT, and I introduced myself to him on numerous occasions. He saw my face over and over and over again. So with this sort of constant repetition of my name and my face, he developed a sense of familiarity for me. Have we ever met before, you and I? Yes, I think we have. Where? Well, in high school. In high school? Yes. Have we ever met any place besides high school? I'll tell you the truth, I can't know. I don't think so. Why am I here now? Well, you're just having an interview with me, I say. That's what I think right now. He never said, you know, oh, yeah, you're Suzanne Corkin. But um, like on one occasion, for example, I said, what's my name, Henry? And he said something like Christine. It was something that was wrong. And I said, no, it's Suzanne. And he said, Corkin. Because of the repetition, he was familiar with my name and my face. Now, what this tells us is that you don't need your hippocampus for recollection based on familiarity. He recognized me because of processes that were going on in some other part of the brain. And we know from uh, fMRI studies and actually one lesion study that the cortex just neighboring the hippocampus, the perirhinal cortex and perihippocampal cortex, which you know and love, Wendy, um, supports recognition based on familiarity. So the next question that has always fascinated me was um, you talked about the length of his damage um, from the tip of the temporal lobe back. And as we know, the first structure, the most anterior structure in the temporal lobe is the amygdala, a structure that we know is very important for emotion. And so therefore... Henry had had most of both sides of his amygdala damaged. And could you talk a little bit about his emotional life and his emotional abilities? Of course, we are very interested in this, of the effects of the amygdalectomy, which is really not a, a memory structure. It's an emotional structure. And of course, emotion can influence memory through back and forth connections with the hippocampus. But the amygdala has functions that it governs in its own right. Henry could show a range of emotion. He could get uh, very angry. His mother used to nag him, and he would throw his glasses at her. When he was in a sheltered workshop, he one day um, became frustrated at the work he was doing because of his amnesia, and he got angry at himself and angry at the world, and he ended up throwing an attendant against the wall and had to be um, sedated with an injection to stop his uh, emotional outburst. Of course, he forgot it the next day. That was very rare. I mean, I, I don't know of any other example like that. But that just shows that he could show very, very, he could be aggressive. At the same time, uh, he could also show sadness. When uh, We didn't talk to him a lot about the fact that his parents had died, but when psychiatrists interviewed him, of course, they have to go into this this area of emotion. 
When one psychiatrist told Henry that his parents had died, he teared up appropriately. So he could, you know, he could be sad. He was not depressed. Um, he also had a wonderful sense of humor. He was a happy man in spite of everything. He smiled a lot, and he uh, had a great sense of humor and would often just crack jokes, almost like a stand-up comedian. So one day when a postdoc was testing Henry at the Clinical Research Center, they walked out of the testing room and the door slammed, and the postdoc said, oh, I think I've left my keys inside. And Henry said, well, at least you'll know where to find them. On another occasion, an undergraduate was, had done a whole series of experiments with crossword puzzles with Henry. Crossword puzzles and other word puzzles were Henry's favorite pastime. And so it had come to the end of this series of experiments, and, and the researcher was talking to Henry about the whole experience. And Henry said, well, you live and learn. I'm living and you're learning. <laughs> That's great. That was in the book. That's actually one of my favorite quotes. Isn't it? I know. I love that. And then uh, just uh, in 2002, which when he was in the nursing home, six, it was six years before he died, uh, another postdoc went in first thing in the morning to his room in the nursing home and, and said, oh, hi, Henry. Did you sleep well last night? And he said, I didn't stay awake to find out. Now, it's not like he made these up and rehearsed them because he obviously, he wouldn't have remembered them. So he just came up with these things, these little quips off the cuff. And this is a great demonstration of his wonderful sense of humor and also his intelligence that he could do this. Well, that really came out in the book and all your wonderful anecdotes. But I have to say that the most touching story that you told about H.M. in this book that I didn't know about at all was um, this was a time when he had gone to live with a, a relative, Mrs. Herrick, and your students were testing him, and, and they found two notes in his wallet. Could you tell us what those two notes said? Yes. Um, so a, a member of my lab noticed that uh, Henry had written two notes to himself, which he kept in his wallet. One of them said, quote, dad's gone. The other said, mom's in nursing home, dash, is in good health. Now, we don't know whether Henry wrote these notes himself, whether the information was dictated to him by Mrs. Herrick and he wrote it down, or whether, you know, he just got this information somehow and wrote it down. But uh, my guess is that it was Mrs. Herrick's idea that he carry these notes with him. She left notes for him around the house, things like wash your hands, put the toilet seat down, television goes off at 10.15, things like that, just to keep him on a, a routine, which was, of course, very good for him and very good for the caregiver. But I'm sure that having these there that he could refer to was a great comfort to him. These were the two people that the, were the most constant in his life. And I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for him. For, well, his father died relatively early. Yes. His father's death was, was unexpected, and it was a big shock. I believe that was in 1966. Of course, Henry kept forgetting that his father had died. And when he came up to MIT, his mother asked us please not to mention it to him because it would upset him. But uh, over the years, he did 
absorb this information. And one time, a few years later, when I was testing him, he talked about his father in the past tense. So I inferred that he, you know, must have have understood by that time that his father was dead. His mother died uh, many years later. His mother lived to be 96 or something like that. She was in a nursing home. Henry had gone, Mrs. Herrick had taken Henry to visit her occasionally. When she died, he was in the nursing home and the nurses told him, and he, uh, he accepted it very matter-of-factly, and he said she was a good woman. She, she took good care of me all of, all of my life. It's so difficult, and as a student of memory, I've often tried to imagine what life must have been like for H.M. And yes, I understand he could remember his name. One of the things that you say in the book is that the question you're asked most frequently is that could he recognize himself in the mirror as he aged because he only knew himself as a young person? Could you could you tell us the answer to that common question? Uh, the answer is yes. But remember that Henry retained all of his semantic knowledge from the preoperative years. So, you know, he could read and write and walk and talk and do mental arithmetic, and his vocabulary was very good. So, of course, he knew what a mirror was. He understood the concept of that when you go up to this glass and something's looking back at you, it's you. So that, w- that was not a problem. Can you t- tell me what you look like? Well, I'd say I'm tall. I'm, well, right. thin, but uh, heavy. Thin, but heavy. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, one time when I asked him to describe himself, he said he had dark brown hair. Well, I'd say I have brown hair, mm-hmm. dark brown hair. This was in 1992, actually. Uh, this was after I had been working with him for 30 years. Any gray hair? I said, do you have any gray hair? And he said, I don't know. And he did. See, I, do, I don't remember that at all. So it's even though he always recognized himself and was never shocked at what he saw in the in the mirror, the information that he got from the mirror was being recorded implicitly, non-consciously, in his memory somewhere. So that when he had to retrieve it consciously, declaratively, and tell me whether he had gray hair or not, he didn't know. One other wonderful point that you make in the book is about a common misconception of the idea of short-term memory and the definition of short-term memory. Could you describe that and what people typically think short-term memory is and what we as neuroscientists and neuropsychologists uh, understand it to be? Yes. The general public, and I will say also neurologists and neurosurgeons, think short-term memory is remembering what you had for dinner last night, but it isn't. These are terms that were defined by psychologists and concepts that were articulated over many years, and unfortunately, (laughs) the word hasn't spread to other professionals, actually, let alone the general public. But short-term memory is the right now. It's what's on your radar radar screen at this second. Now, The distinction between short-term memory and long-term memory was initially articulated by William James at Harvard in the 19th century with wonderful definitions. He said short-term memory is the information that never left your consciousness. 
It's the right now. It's not something that happened just before. It's not something that will happen just after. It's this very instant. In contrast, long-term memory is information that left your memory and has to be brought back or fished up or recalled. Those were William James' words. And psychologists over the decades have reinforced this definition. Uh, Hebb gave it a biological definition uh, with his theory, and he proposed that short-term memory was based on an activity trace, whereas long-term memory derived from a structural trace at the synapse. And his hypothesis, which was based on his strong intellect and speculation, turned out to be true. There is a a Hebbian kind of uh, change in the brain. When you're not at MIT, what do you do during a typical day? See, that's uh, what I don't, I don't remember things. Uh-huh. Do you know what you did yesterday? No, I don't. How about this morning? I don't even remember that. Could you tell me what you had for lunch today? I don't know, to tell you the truth. I'm not... What do you think you'll do tomorrow? Whatever is beneficial. Good answer. Uh, Scoville and Milner provided a behavioral distinction, a systems-level distinction between short and long-term memory, because they showed that Henry's digit span was intact, his immediate memory. So, for example, if I said to Henry, I'm going to say some digits, and I want you to repeat them after me, and then said three, six, nine, eight, five, he could say three, six, nine, eight, five. He encoded this information. He held on to it in his short-term memory, his immediate memory. But if he were distracted, he might not even know that I had read any digits to him at all. In contrast, Goble and Milner showed that with the, uh, Brenda gave him the Wexler memory scale and showed that his, his long-term memory was profoundly impaired. I want to ask you some questions about World War II. Mm-hmm. Remember World War II? Yes. When was World War II? Well, for, it began before the 1939, where we entered it. And we entered it on the 7th of December. In what year? 1940. Mm-hmm. And who were we at war with? And, well, we went to war with Japan, and we used to do war, too. Uh, well, naturally, we burnished supplies and that thing, sort of thing, and over in Europe, too, uh-huh. we were at a war. What country in Europe? We furnished it mostly to, uh, well, England. Mm-hmm. And right. To, so they could help the other nations that were uh, conquered already. Who else were we at war with? Well, the Nazis, in a way. Uh huh. Can can you tell me who the world leaders were during that time? The name, their names. Well, I think of uh, the president being Roosevelt. Uh mm-hmm. huh. What was his first name? Um. 
What were his initials? Dare I have an, an argument with myself because he had a, an uncle that was or someone earlier that mm -hmm. was in his family that had been a president too. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Franklin. Good for you. What was his middle name? Delanor. Good. Perfect. Because his uh, uncle or some was uh, the leader of the United States and was the president then, but he first had led the charge on San Juan Hill. And what was his name? Uh, Teddy. Good for you. That's terrific. You may be wondering why Henry had such a great memory for the details of World War II and even earlier. He had amnesia after all. The key point is that he learned all this information before his brain operation. The surgery didn't affect his ability to retrieve older memories, but after the removal of his hippocampus and amygdala on both sides, he was no longer able to form any new long-term memories. What we learn from patient HM is that damage to these medial temporal lobe structures impaired his ability to encode or lay down new long-term memories without impairing his ability to retrieve what was already in his brain. Who is the President of the United States now? That I don't, couldn't tell you. I don't remember exactly at all. Is it a man or a woman? I think it's a man. His initials um, are G.B. Does that help? His first name begins with a G, and his last name begins with a B. No, it doesn't help. His first name is George. What's his last name? One of my most memorable experiences with HM, who I'd never met, was um, because of you. So you came to NIH when I was a postdoc there, and you played a radio interview that you had done with HM. And that was the first time that I had ever heard his voice. And in it, you asked him, so what do you think about all this testing that we do on you? And so my question for you is, what was his awareness? What did, he, what did he answer? And what was his awareness of how he was serving the science community in such a profound way? Well, his answer to that question was, I don't mind. Whatever I can do to help other people. Now, Henry was very altruistic. And he that was almost like his mantra. And he repeated that over and over, not only to us, but also to the other people in the nursing home where he lived. And he knew that he was making a contribution to the world. He did not consider himself special. He considered himself as one patient with epilepsy among a whole big group of people who were epileptic. And he wanted to do anything that he could do to advance knowledge that might help him perhaps, but if not him, all the other epileptic people in the world. And I think that he derived a lot of personal satisfaction, and I, I think it was an important part of his sense of self. That, you know, he, he defined himself as somebody who was 
who is helping doctors to help their patients. The last thing that I wanted to ask you about, Suzanne, is your amazing role in preserving HM's legacy in terms of preserving his his brain and being responsible for the uh, processing of his brain tissue after he uh, passed away. I have often thought that that must have been one of the most awesome responsibilities in all of neuroscience. Can you tell us about that and how it was for you and how it happened? Well, it began in the late 1970s when I began working on Alzheimer's disease. And what I learned right away is that getting uh, brain autopsies, getting the, the brains of the patients you studied, was fundamental to discovering the cause and the cure of Alzheimer's disease. And I was, you know, involved in the process of asking patients for, that I studied behaviorally for brain donations. So uh, at the same time, I realized, well, of course, we should get HM's brain when he dies for several reasons. We want to know the exact locus and extent of his lesion. We want to know about the integrity of the remaining tissue that supported all of his other normal cognitive processes and other brain processes. And we want to know any details of events that occurred in his brain independently of his operation, but related to old age, because he was 82 when he died, and 82-year-old brains have a lot of abnormal findings in them. And so I talked with H.M. and his conservator about the importance of brain donation. And what I said to them was, I first of all told them about this enormously rich database we have we had of behavioral data that we had collected that many researchers, actually over 100 researchers, studied HM, either in my lab or in uh, other institutions that we collaborated with. And so we had this vast amount of data, a cornucopia of data. And I explained to them that it would make all of these data even more meaningful if we could actually look at Henry's brain after he died and see exactly where the operation had taken place. And so they agreed with this idea, and they signed a brain donation form in 1992. And this uh, document, this legal document, left Henry's brain, in fact, his entire body, to Mass General and MIT uh, for further research, for scientific study after his death. Then the next step was planning. If you wait till the last minute and when someone dies and you say, oh, yeah, we'd like to study the brain, well, it's too late. So in 2002, I set up an interdisciplinary committee to start planning what we would do uh, minute by minute, pretty much, when HM dies. The committee was composed of neuropathologists from Mass General, neurologists from Mass General, people who did uh, imaging at the Martinos Center at Mass General, and neuroscientists from my lab. And we met periodically over the years, and as time went on, our, our plans became more and more and more and more detailed. So that by the time Henry died in 2008, we had given the nursing home, I gave the nursing home a whole list of things that they must do when Henry died, and this was placed right on the inside cover of his chart so that the nursing home people knew what to do one of the things they had to do was to take um, cryopack cold 
uh, bubbles that they that I took to them and they kept in their freezer. They put the cryopack material around his head to keep his brain cool while he was being transported to Mass General. And we also had lined up funeral homes who would be willing to transport the body to Mass General. And of course, we told them that, that we would guarantee that they would be paid because they always worry about that. And so pretty much all the ducks were in order, including two call lists. One call list was the neuropath call list, and the other call list was the imaging call list. So as soon as I got the call that he died, uh, I initiated a set of calls, and you know everyone called each other, went to each other's offices, and we got all the, the wheels in motion to, um, to proceed with the post-mortem examination. Uh, a uh, hearse brought Henry's body to Mass General in Charlestown, and we had him in the scanner in just under four hours from the time he died. He was scanned that whole night uh, for eight hours uh, by Andre van der Kauer, who did an absolutely fantastic job. The next morning, another hearse took him to the Mass General morgue, where Matthew Frosch performed the autopsy very carefully and expertly, and um, harvested Henry's brain intact. Then it was uh, placed in formalin for 10 weeks, and we scanned it again at that time uh, in a special container created to hold the brain in the scanner. We scanned him first at uh, in a three-Tesla magnet, which is pretty standard now for research, and also in a seven-Tesla magnet, which is very powerful. All of those findings from the imaging session the night he died and 10 weeks later are uh, in press in the journal called Hippocampus. And the cover of the journal will be H.M.'s fresh brain uh, right after it came out of his skull. It must have been difficult to uh, both both satisfying to go through this whole procedure uh, and get such a successful extraction of the brain, but you had tested Henry for so many years, and you had a strong relationship with him. What, what was it like to oversee this last part of his life? Well, it was heavy. Of course, the minute I, that he died, I knew, I, you know, I went into uh, my non-emotional cognitive gear because we had a lot of work to do. So we did it. We did our work. I, st I was in the, in the room outside the scanner uh, I spent the night there while Henry was being scanned, and and it was then that I had time to sit down at my laptop and, and start writing his obituary and think about the fact that I had lost a friend. And, of course, it was very sad. And it's still, I mean, it is, it is a sad story overall. You know, I, I really had mixed emotions. Um, one was a, a work work mode, and the other was... Uh, more personal, emotional mode. Henry, Henry, you know, he's still with me. I've written extensively about him. I'm still writing about him, collaborating with other people, writing papers about him. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, being interviewed by people like you, it, it keeps him alive. And I think, you know, he's he's in the room with us right now. And I think that that will continue to be the case for decades, probably. So the last story I wanted to tell was my own story on December 4th, 2008, when his 
obituary was published on the front page of the New York Times. And I was working here at New York University. I happened to have a lecture that morning in my brain and behavior class, a, a science class for non-science majors. And it was difficult. You know, I shared this information with them, and, and I think we, we had just started the, the memory component so that they knew about it. And so this was, this was huge news. And the most poignant thing to me was that I never knew his name. You know, since the 1980s, he had been patient HM, and he had been this kind of um, distant but very, very, you know, valuable um, patient. But it was so different to learn his name. And um, I can imagine that many other neuroscientists that study memory had that same reaction because you you kept the secret probably the best kept secret in neuroscience for 50 years was was Henry's name we never knew Brenda Milner and I decided early on that we would maintain the policy that we have with all of our patients that we don't reveal their names in the old days we used initials now we just use numbers uh, but we, because we knew that the whole world was interested in HM, uh, we decided that we, we had to work extra hard to maintain his privacy and conceal his identity. So we decided that we would never reveal his name and that we would not allow the media to photograph him or even lab members to photograph him. And so when, when Henry was in the nursing home, he developed dementia which had nothing to do with the brain operation. You know, a certain percentage of older people become demented. He was one of them. It was probably vascular dementia. So, you know, I knew that the end was approaching. We were planning what we would do for the postmortem study. And I asked his conservator at that time whether he would like me to help him write the obituary. And he said yes. And I said, would it be okay to use Henry's real name? And he said yes. So I gave that information to colleagues and, and to the New York Times with the permission of the conservator. And I think Henry would have liked that, that he got this worldwide recognition, not just as, as a initials, but as a real person, Henry Mollison. One thing that I want to mention is that H.M.'s case inspired probably thousands of neuroscientists, current neuroscientists, to go into neuroscience. It's really incredible. I, you know, and I think he's still inspiring people, you know, through what they learn about him now. I have had many people come up to me after I've given talks and said, I'm a neuroscientist because of HM. So, I mean, Henry has, in his own little way, he has changed the world. Well, I'll add to that, Sue, that it's not just Henry. It's the people that, and the women in particular, that studied him. Memory would not be where it is today if Brenda and you had not been able to glean everything. It wasn't written on his forehead. You had to figure this stuff out. Mm -hmm. So, um, yes, it's him, and he deserves lots of credit, but so do you and Brenda. Thank you.
It was such a pleasure to interview Suzanne Corkin and learn so much about Henry Mollison, the man. Even though all of my work since I was a graduate student and a postdoc was really based on this description of patient HM, I have to say I never fully appreciated the full scope of his story. From the tragedy of his experimental brain surgery that went terribly wrong, to the groundbreaking knowledge that Brenda Milner and Suzanne Corkin revealed, to his lifelong, enthusiastic, and intentional contribution to science. How do you feel about answering so many questions and doing all the tests that we give you? Well, I don't mind. What is found out about me helps you to help others. That's, that's right. That's very true. And that, I figure that's more important in a way. been listening to Totally Cerebral from PRX, produced by Julie Burstein, with editing and sound design by Derek John. Our executive producer is John Barth, and we've had help from Genevieve Sponsler and Lily Bowie. This episode was recorded at Argo Studios in New York City. I'm Dr. Wendy Suzuki. Transistor is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org. <laughs>